Welcome inside the Celtics Life Podcast. I'm Topher Lane, here with Justin Quinn, and for the next several podcasts, and hopefully more, we're switching things up for a bit of a more playoff-friendly format. We'll cover the week's big events, and then dive right into the playoff picture, since we know that's the main thing on all of our minds. Justin, how's it going? Well, it could have gone better last night, but compared to what I thought we were going to be getting, what we're going to be talking about, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, we're on the heels of that Game 4 loss. On the heels of then a really miraculous game three win. And yeah, game, game four was rough, especially because it seemed like we honestly had it in the bag, or at least it felt like we were going to compete and stick with them through the entire game, possibly pull it out for the win. But fourth quarter, well, third quarter comes along, Kyrie Irving goes off. And then fourth quarter, they come ahead and we really couldn't answer back to pull out the win in Cleveland. But it's really helpful when you have multiple all stars on your team. It's helpful when any all-star is on the court. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not even also like... Also true. Like, yeah, it's it's not even that they have multiple all-stars. It's that we do not have a single all-star on the active roster. So so what do you think of this narrative that was popping up after Game 3 in light of Game 4 of that we have to or should trade Isaiah Thomas? I understand the logic. You know, like it, it's not... I, I can see why people agree with it. And you and I have had these conversations that Isaiah probably isn't sustainable with how he plays the game. And, you know, I feel like he'll, he doesn't have the durability for a max deal to stick around for, for that long. And so you and I have discussed, like, maybe we should go for a two year deal or, or something of that nature. It's really complicated, particularly with this injury now. And just not to get too far off track of my original query. There is a very clear lack of scoring when he's not available and we're not all gassed up on Marcus Smart shooting twice his usual rate of three-pointers. And actually shooting 700 down the line in the last game, in game three. And he was shooting under half of that for the whole season. So when you don't have that, and let's be honest, we really shouldn't expect it, Isaiah is kind of important, but as you pointed out, the hip surgery, it's going to be, it's going to be really, it's going to be interesting to see how he comes back from that because it's not a small surgery and it's going to affect his game, at least for a while, possibly permanently. You know, if we didn't have someone waiting in the wings, theoretically, in the Mark Helfoltz type mold, we would have some problems to deal with. Have they committed to surgery yet? I saw well, my, yes. my understanding is he's Tuesday. That he's seen a specialist. He's getting more more opinions, so I'm guessing the specialist probably didn't tell him what he wanted to hear, which means probably he's still looking for someone who can come together with a plan for recovery that is both reliable enough to get him to where he needs to go and hopefully doesn't get him under the knife. But I, I assume, as based on the fact that he hasn't found one yet, that surgery is still a very significant possibility. I'm wondering if that changes my opinion on this. Because, I, I mean, I, I'm not one to say that surgery ends a person's career. And I know some people are very skeptical, especially with a player like Isaiah. It won't end his career, but well, if he comes back less explosive, less fast. Exactly. And that, that would be catas- cat- um, cataclysmic. Absolutely. Try, there's another word, but it would be uh, catastrophic. That's what I was looking for. It'd be catastrophic it'd be in his career if he well. down. If, if he doesn't, have, let's restart that. Cause I, yeah, <laughs> I think that it would be catastrophic to his, to his career to lose that speed and to lose that kind of bounce that he has, that, that ability to accelerate and it, a hip injury. I mean, how valuable is, you know, his, his hip to that explosiveness. And that's something that we kind of saw in the beginning of this series against Cleveland. It was still a good player. Absolutely. But you could, you could feel that he was a little bit slower and a little, a little bit more reluctant to drive. And it didn't really affect his finishing ability, but it seemed like it was affecting his ability to jump. Granted, my perspective is that he was playing through it. And so my hope is that, you know, it's something that he can give a summer to heal and not necessarily go through surgery and that he'll be fine to play. And with less of a role, I think he'll still be a go-to scorer for sure, but he'll have someone else that he can distribute to, whether that's Gordon Hayward, whether it's Paul George, whether that's Jimmy Butler, these guys that ideally we can acquire, there's trade market or free agency, 
and will take a little bit of the, the load off of his shoulders, which will help if he you know, is still recovering from this injury, is still recovering from this surgery. And I think having a secondary scorer or a secondary player, and maybe that's someone who takes the reins sometimes, whether it's like the game last night, Kyrie Irving took the load from LeBron James because he was in foul trouble, and he's the one who stepped up and won the game for the Cavs. And if the Celtics can get someone who can do that, another all-star who can who can take that role, then that could change entirely how he plays. And I'd be more optimistic about his his timetable with the Celtics if he's not a guy that we rely on time in, time out, especially in late-game situations, to be the exclusive scorer. With free agency being what it is, I don't think there is a better team positioned. Even, even the Spurs, I don't think they're better positioned to make an argument to a potential free agent than the Celtics particularly after the last two games. We were in a strong position even when we were getting blown out. Now that we're putting up a fight and making the Cavs look vaguely mortal, we're in a really good situation. But even if we somehow miraculously do not get our guy, whoever that is, through a trade or through free agency, we also have the draft. Yep. And you, you've been our draft guru for the last six months, however long we've been kind of looking at the draft. You were a trade guy, and then after the deadline, so I guess it's only been three months that you've been working on this, on this draft stuff. But Yeah, I mean, I watched the college game as a, as a big UConn junkie. It's been a little hard this year with UConn having an off year like they are, but I've still been keeping my eye on potential prospects for Boston. The interest in the college game has been steady because with the tantalizing and now arrived uh, reality of the first pick, you know, I, I want to know who, who we can use to make this team better. And the conventional wisdom has been Markel Fultz. Yeah. So what's, what's your breakdown of like top, I, I don't know, like who, who would you ideally put as, as your top six, eight guys that you'd be looking well, at for the, for the number one pick? If, I think I mean, we have, you could, you could say that there are four players with any realistic chance of being drafted. In the first slot, depending on what team it is. Now, it's the Celtics, so it's almost certainly going to be Markel Fultz. And it should be, in my opinion. He, the same reasons, uh, my breakdown, I, I, I put out a really simple breakdown of the most likely eight candidates out there for a number one pick. There's always a chance that Danny Ainge will get a bug in his bonnet, or be in his bonnet, I think I'd say that, that. Yeah, anyway, uh, about who he should take that perhaps is not Markel Fultz. I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. But just for the exercise of being thorough, the reasons why I listed Markel Fultz should not go are the same reasons as why he should go number one, which is basically that he takes and makes shots all over the court with double, sometimes even triple coverage, which is not going to work in the NBA, at least not at first. He's got a lot to learn about offensive and defensive positioning and knowing when to give it up. So Markel Fultz, the biggest knock against him is his defense. He's got a lack of buy-in that may be due to playing on a very, very mediocre team, but it's also a little concerning. So Fultz is not really the guy that you would want ideally with no flaws in his game, but they are fairly minor in terms of where he's at in his developmental curve. And they may also be related to the situation he was in. And a lot of the same way that Jalen Brown was roundly critiqued for his shot and a system that gave him very little opportunity to shoot or score in the lane. I agree that they, that this shouldn't just be a lock of Markel Fultz for the number one pick. In the same way that right now, the Lakers, who have been linked to Lonzo Ball for really all of this season, depending on where their pick fell, their pick did fall at number two, so they should ideally get Lonzo Ball. But for the same reason, they're exploring the concept of De'Aaron Fox from Kentucky, and they've made it clear that they're actually looking at other options just in case. I think that they'll still probably pick Lonzo Ball, but I think it's important to make sure that you explore all options. And yeah, Boston Ball, could give Ball him a question mark, because they could, I mean, it's possible that Boston either trades the pick or that they don't pick Markel Fultz. I don't think that they're going to pick Ball, but there are some you know, pundits who believe that Lonzo Ball would be a better pick for the Celtics, in part because he's more proven in the college game. And that's something that, that is a question mark for, for Markel Fultz. It's something that is a concern for me, 
And I've made that clear on this podcast that I, I take issue with the fact that he was on such a, a, a team, a guy who goes number one overall should probably not be on a team that only has nine wins. You'd think a guy who goes number one overall could carry a team to better than nine wins, regardless of the talent around him. And that's something that really, I, I take a lot of issue with that because that's something that I think illustrates his ability to lead. And if we're trying to pick this guy to be the future of the franchise, alongside Jalen Brown, alongside other rookies that we pick, whether it's the 2018 Brooklyn pick or, you know, whatever else we, we bring in, whether it's trade market free agency, I would hope that a leader would be able to bring a guy to more than nine, bring, bring a mediocre team to more than nine wins. And you can yeah, point to a I lot have, of players who've been able to do that in the college game. I have the same concerns. If, if Simmons had played for Philadelphia this year, we might have a template to look at and, and kind of get a feel for maybe the new, the new approach to going to college when you are a almost assured lottery talent is just to show up and give some, some scouts a little bit more of a glimpse. It's really, in my mind, for example, Amadou Diallo uh, playing for Kentucky, supposedly, the, and, and now he's he's currently as a, a maybe in this draft. He may be doing something fairly similar to what we'll see more and more and more of, either going overseas for a year or going to prep school or maybe just enrolling and practicing with a college just to get some some development repetitions and coming around and seeing how the draft is over the summer before you come in just to see if your stock is going to be high enough. There's there's a lot of factors going on with Lonzo Ball. Besides that particular component, his shot has a bit of a hitch, a funky release that has me concerned. But he is good enough where if you can separate him, and this is a big ask in and of itself from the media circus that follows him around with his father, in, in in that situation, he is talented enough where he should still at least be in the conversation for the number one pick, apart from all the other components, because you don't draft a, a player for where they want to go. Lots and lots and lots of players end up wanting to go here, there, and the other place before they are drafted. Sometimes, like Kobe Bryant, they can put enough pressure on the particular team that might be drafting them that they can you know, get traded to another team like Kobe did other times, like Jaleel Okafor, maybe not. I, well, first I want to jump, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to jump back to that, that Ben Simmons comparison. Mm-hmm. At least L- the LSU team that Ben Simmons was on was competing for a spot in the NCAA tournament. Also true. They also pulled themselves from contention because of, you know, in part because of Simmons' presumably academic issues that they maybe he wouldn't have been eligible to even play. And it would have been similar to my SU kind of conundrum that happened with Fab Mello, where he shouldn't have played and ended up costing us a lot of wins. Yep. But, you know, they, they pulled themselves from eligibility. They may or may not have made it. They had 18 wins. Sometimes you see some teams in the bubble who have 18 wins that, that make it into the field. But th- that's a comparison that Simmons, I feel, was leading his team that, albeit had more talent, but still led a team to 18 wins compared to nine that Markel Fultz had. And that that's alarming to me. To go to what you're saying about Lonzo Ball, I, I agree that, I mean, there there's a lot of problems, and that's something the Lakers are exploring. They're going to ask UCLA what their thoughts were with LeVar's involvement with the program and how he tried to, to play around with stuff. And there's a possibility that he was really involved and he was making an effort to, to say stuff. The stuff that he's saying on TV, in interviews, radio, stuff like that. He's That's marketing. Saying, I know, but he's been saying he's going to walk alongside him. He's not going to walk behind his son. He's going to walk alongside him with every decision he makes, with everything he does. And to a front office, what does that do? How, how detrimental is this guy's personality to a franchise when he starts criticizing the coach, when he starts criticizing Luke Walton for opting to have someone take the shot at the end of the game and he'll step up and say, oh, you should have let my son take the shot because he would have hit it and something like yeah, that. And then suddenly that's not going to find himself banned from games if he gets too, too boisterous and whether he likes it or not, they'll control his son's contract for at least four years. So yeah, but even then there's, there's still the possibility of something like that happening. And it's not out of the realm of possibility. And that's, that's something that I think front offices are slightly questioning. I know Danny, Ainge, they should be. They Back should. In February, I think Danny Ainge said that 
LeVar Ball is not going to change his decision to draft or not draft Lonzo. And No, but but Lonzo Ball's interaction with the team, how he talks about the situation with interviews with front offices, that will. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I'm not in the Lonzo Ball camp. I'm not a fan of... I, I, I'm a fan of his game. I think he's got that hitch in his shot, which you mentioned, but I'm not a fan of him coming to the Celtics. I think he'll probably he'll turn, fine. He'll turn into a, an adequate, if not all-star player. And I think that's that's an appropriate assumption. I think that's the direction that his career will go, barring any, any major changes. It'll be interesting to see how his shot adapts to the NBA, because I don't think what it is now is sustainable. I think that NBA defenders will be able to stop that shot pretty easily because he like goes from the chest low down. You know, you think of Dirk Nowitzki who goes straight above his head. Lonzo Ball is the exact opposite, and it's something that really even a smaller defender should probably be able to disrupt a lot more easily than someone like Isaiah, who is able to to get shots above defenders. It doesn't seem like Lonzo's shot is able to do that. His court vision, his distribution is phenomenal, and that's what I think makes him stand out from the field. And hopefully he can distribute to someone like Paul George, which is kind of the Lakers' dream of of next summer, and someone that would pair pretty well with him because he'd have that ability to distribute, and Paul George would take defenders off of him, which would free him up to get some space to get that shot off. But I think his career depends on who's around him, whereas Markel Fultz, for me, you mentioned that he was able to take those shots amidst double, triple coverage. I think he'll be able to translate that to the NBA at some point, but Maybe he's not able a first, to for himself. He's able yeah. to create for himself, and we can see that. Lonzo, I don't think, has that ability, and that's something we saw in the NCAA tournament when he got shut down. Yeah, those two are really in the high probability for first pick. I think the only situation I could see the Celtics taking Lonzo Ball is to trade him to the Lakers and try to try to squeeze something out of them for it. But apart from that, I don't really think there's it's really kind of more like a one in 1.1 tier for Fultz and Ball, respectively, because Fultz is the better overall player. He doesn't have the distractions following him everywhere. And the rest of the field have some significant problems with their games that keep me and most analysts in general, I think, away from seriously suggesting a number one pick. However, a situation, as I just mentioned with Lonzo Ball, could also happen with the teams that have their eye on some of these people. So it's not entirely out of the question that we could end up selecting one of these particular players I'm going to mention now. Well, and, and I do want to chime in and say that role is also an important aspect. I mean, we are a very guard-heavy team, the Celtics. They're not the number one pick, it's not. You just don't. I mean, you can make an argument for well, that's, you know, that's a lottery why, pick for role. That's why I think that these these guys that you're about to mention, you know, the, the guys that you're going to list off who are bigger, who are bigs, they have other roles. And I think there's some importance with that because of our glaring issue with rebounding. I mean, if Isaiah comes back healthy and we can build around him long-term and like everything ideally works out, there's not a huge need for a guy like Markel Fultz. I mean, that's barring the fact that he could be a phenomenal all-star level, level player. Oh, he's almost certainly going to be at least at least a quality starter. He might not quite hit all star, but it's it's almost certain odds when there's this kind of consensus for a number one pick that he's going to at least work out. He might not be better than say like a Kyle Lowry type player. It's entirely possible, but who's going to complain about something like that? Well, that's that's why I say it's important to look at every option, and I think. Danny Ainge and the Celtics front office is obviously looking, exploring more than just the top two picks of Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball. And then there's a handful of other guys they could look at, but I think that they're looking at every possibility and rebounding is an important aspect and finding a a center to replace Amir Johnson, someone who can actually be more of an impact player outside of 10, 12 minutes a game. That's that's an important aspect, something that we may approach in the free agency market, something we may approach in the trade market. But nonetheless, I think that's something that the front office is going to explore, and it's it's important to have all those options in front of you. So besides those two, you could make an argument for any of the remaining six players that I think have a outside but remote chance at being drafted first overall. Malik Monk of Kentucky... He is an offensive monster. He can just 
go off and put points for, up from just about anywhere on the, on the court. However, he's also occasionally out of control. He just goes in too hard and he's a little, he's a little short as well. So that can be a problem defensively. Kind of like another player I can think of who's currently on the Celtics, but maybe a slightly better scorer. Marcus Smart, obviously. <laughs> now, I was enamored with him as well as Laurie Markkanen, who I'm still enamored with, mostly because of his shot, as probably most of you heard me ranting about at some point or another this season. It's, it's flawless. It is quick release, completely smooth, no hitch, and a foot higher release point than the, net, the Ray Allen, who's basically, in my opinion, the best shot I've seen since him. That's saying a lot. I haven't watched every single game of Markon in this series, but I have watched highlights at least of every game that he's played in. And to me, like I understand that his expect, expected role as either a four or a five, preferably a five, have some issues on defense. He, he doesn't have the core strength to battle for rebounds. If you are, if you are shooting above 40% on three from a forward position, I, do not believe this is going to matter whatsoever. The only other argument that keeps him, in my opinion, away from a one or two pick is the fact that his footwork kind of sucks, particularly on the perimeter. And I think that has been because of the fact that he has not been properly trained for the role that he's going to have in the NBA, not at Arizona and definitely not before that. I think that these are two very, very, very simple things to fix. I mean, footwork, it's a little more difficult, but he looks adept and athletic enough where I feel that he's got a lot of potential in that regard. And core strength, hes he, if you just look at him a year ago and look at him now, he just has the mistake that everybody seems to have in the weight room when they first start putting on weight, which is you have to do more than your arms, guys. That's yeah, and I, I kind of get a Kelly Olynyk vibe, Dragon Bender vibe, but with more athleticism, more athleticism and more strength. He's he's got more strength up top. He's just not putting it on his core, and his legs are chicken legs. I mean, his legs look like mine, and that just makes no sense because he he's a foot taller than me. So that 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 comes with the territory, though. Like once you get to the NBA, I mean, you spend time in the weight room. It's your career, not just your your side gig as the NCAA would, would have you believe. Exactly. And then, you know, he'll have the ability to bulk up in the NBA, whether it's, you know, in training camp, stuff like that. And I, I that's never really a huge concern of mine because I look at guys like Jabari Parker, who was pretty small coming out of college. And even with his ACL and MCL injuries, he's still bulked up and, and put some size on him. I'm trying to think of some other guys to compare him to, but there's a lot of guys who come in small and find a way to add that bulk to him that, I think it comes to the territory. Kevin O'Connor and Jonathan Sharks of The Ringer did a podcast where they discussed him at length fairly recently. And their concern was if he doesn't make the next leap, if he doesn't end up in the right system, you're going to get a 35-year-old Dirk, which is, you know, someone who won a championship. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, he's like a, a super plus role player, to be sure, because of his deficiencies on defense. But... They're not as big as people think. You know, you're still going to get a top-notch, top-tier player out of them. I think people are worried. Well, everyone but, wants everyone wants the Chris Das Porzingis unicorn-style player, the like giant I don't guy. Think he's that different from Porzingis. I think he, exactly. Porzingis has a lot of the same problems. And that's 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 actually a better comparison than the ones that I mentioned earlier. But I think everyone wants that Chris Das-style player right now because that's what kind of direction the NBA is moving. Is you know stretch. Five really, who can hit from outside, who can score from anywhere on the court. And defense is something that a lot of teams are willing to sacrifice right now, in part because you're matching unicorn with unicorn. <laughs> you know, it's, it's becoming this strange, like, everyone's trying to stretch the floor and, and suddenly you don't need a rim protector as much. And the rim protector is more just, you know, that you can double up a guy who's trying to drive, but they're the unstoppable players like LeBron James, who you just you have to deal with what you can get. And if you can force them to stay outside, that's that's more defense that you can put laterally rather than something that you have to do with the rim. Now, another player who gets mentioned very high very often is Jason Tatum. And he has a lot of the similar, similar problems in that he's a combo forward. And he's got, he's got, for his size, very good handles. 
And he's, he's a competent defensive player, but he also needs work, particularly for his position. He's not so great near the perimeter. He's a little slow. His shooting and passing, they're, they're all going to need some work to play in the NBA. And history. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's some, there's some concerns that he, had he bolstered this, these concerns in his year at Duke, the injury history probably wouldn't matter. People would be willing to deal with that, but he didn't really develop that much in his one year in, in the NCAAs. So he, he did not get to where some people thought he might be able to. And I, I think that he is another person who very well could solve a lot of the problems with some very basic development, but he doesn't have a completely elite level skill the same way that Mark Hannon has. So I actually have him lower than Mark Hannon in my board, though a lot of people would disagree with that. Besides that, we have Josh Jackson, who's another really popular, popular choice for top pick. Uh, I, I think that his, his, the concerns around his character with the incident between him and a female basketball player for the University of Kansas are, are going to be enough to keep him out of the top five, which it's probably the right move until we see a little more maturity from a player as talented as him. The biggest concern for him was his shooting. He seems to have added one through the latter half of the season with Kansas, but it's a very small sample size and, you know, 15 or 20 games is not enough. It's just not. So I am not ready to say that he is going to be the next Jalen Brown. We already have a Jalen Brown. So, I don't really think, you know, I mean, to counteract my own argument earlier that we shouldn't be picking for need at this level of talent. In this particular case, I, I'm not real high on, on Josh Jackson for several reasons. De'Aaron Fox from Kentucky, he is possibly the most tantalizing prospect who could go number one. He is so fast and he can change speeds at the drop of a hat. He has great court vision, second maybe only to Lonzo Ball, and he has amazing handles, but man, that guy cannot hit a three to save his life. I mean, he makes, if you take out Marcus Smart's last, last game, game three, he's terrible. He's like a 24 or 25% three point shooter with significant attempts. So that basically tanked his possibility of take, being taken first. And then there's Jonathan Isaac, who, has a super high motor and just gets these rebounds, even though his hands aren't very big and he is super, super thin, which is the biggest problem for him. It's going to give him problems when he tries to compete against longer and stronger NBA forwards. But his offensive versatility, keep him, keep him into the, the conversation because he just finds ways to score and also to get rebounds in ways, in situations that he just shouldn't be able to. So if he can put on some weight, he's another really interesting prospect. But those are the guys I think that have any chance at being taken number one. I would agree in that it's probably between Markel Fultz and Lonzo Ball, which was really your initial statement. But, yep. you know, like I said, role is an important aspect. I think Jonathan Isaac, if we were talking, if we were drafting exclusively for what we need, I think Jonathan Isaac would be a good fit. I, I don't think he should go number one overall, but he... I compare him to Julio Okafor, I think, is, is a fair comparison of, of recent draftees because he's got great footwork in the lane, an ability to score really against anybody in the paint. And then just, yeah, like you said, he finds a way to grab those rebounds, finds a way to get those boards, whether it's offensive, defensive, and he puts it back up. And he's was an effective scorer in the ACC, led Florida State to one of their best records in recent memory. And... I like him as a player, and I think as far as role goes, that would be our best pick outside of Lonzo or Markel Fultz, but I maintain that Markel Fultz should probably be a pick if we don't trade it. Very much agree. Just just so people don't get it twisted, I am not suggesting that we take anyone but Fultz. In my mind, he's the obvious choice at this point, but it's also good to do some research on someone just in case we wake up to a surprise. Do you have any wild cards that just like completely have no idea? Like, if like an Isaiah Thomas style wild card, an Isaiah, you mean in terms of like a surprise draft of people who maybe I didn't even mention? Sure, absolutely. There is definitely one floating out there, and it has a lot to do with doctors. Doctors are going to be a very heavy theme in this podcast, 
Harry Giles, if he gets medically uh, cleared. Not, not a Duke player. Killing me. I know, I know. I mean, hey, I'm a UConn fan. We have, we have, you know, eternal hatred towards Duke, at least while they're at Duke. The knees of Harry Giles have kept him out of the conversations of a lottery pick when, you know, not even a full year ago, he was still in the conversation of potentially being the number one pick. I don't think he's going to be a number one pick, but if he gets an amazing bill of health and, you know, his his performance at the Combine was good. It was very good, and it, it'll probably get him into the lottery if he's cleared. I don't think there's any chance that he could be taken number one, but you never know. Crazier things have happened. And if he stays healthy and projects to be the kind of player that initially he looked like, that would be the biggest wild card I think I can think of in recent draft history, but it's not impossible. I would say he's the biggest question mark in the sense that every single draft board that I've seen has him swinging from top five all the way to second round. Yep. So he's just all like no big board can figure out where he should go. And I think it's just because no team knows it's, he's going to be like the Thon maker of this year's draft where it's just like he could go top 10 or top 15, in which case Thon maker did, but most teams pegged him at like low twenties, if not second round. And so it's what team wants to take a risk on him and do they want to risk a lottery pick on him? I think someone may. I don't, and I, I put you on the, on the spot there to say Orlando, but. Yeah, you know, there's a team like Orlando who might who might be one to be. New management, they can afford to, to flub one. They have multiple first rounders, so yeah, and they've got the, the sixth overall pick along with a handful of other ones. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Orlando find a spot for him. I think they got six and twenty five, I believe. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him go top ten. I also wouldn't be surprised to see him go in the twenties. It's just you know he's definitely I, I appreciate that that wild card because he's all over the place. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, let's kind of take a quick look at what's going on. Gershon Yabuselli, uh, speaking of doctors, Dancing Bear. Yeah, let's go with doctors, right? So, Dancing Bear, uh, who came to Maine for the playoffs and played for the Red Claws right at the end. Of- well, but he was a little underwhelming. I was pleased. And, and Mark Allison, our other contributor slash podcast star, was, uh, podcast star. He enjoyed. He, he was like our play-by-play for the Red Claws games because I had no way of watching them and I didn't know how to watch them. But yeah, no, Gershon was playing well. Jordan Mickey was playing well. There was some sweet stuff going on. And it was the the Red Claws like first playoff win too, right? Or first playoff series win? First playoff, um, you know, I'm not entirely positive it was their first playoff win, but I think it was their first playoff series, I believe. It might have been. I mean, it was definitely their most successful, regardless. Yeah, well, so Yabusele, yeah, I was really pleased. Um, but he's got bone spurs on his foot, one of, the, one of his feet. Yep, he's got bone spurs, and I think a lot of people freaked out when they heard foot injury. Big man, don't be. Just don't. It's okay. Bone spurs are really common. All they are is... Okay, so there's several different kinds of bone spurs, but really most of what it comes from is when certain parts of your bones have been stressed, usually where a tendon connects, calcification grows where it shouldn't, most often into these, these tendons, and they become bone, which then kind of cuts into your flesh as you step or move which is painful. That's why Ray Allen couldn't get his shot off as well towards the latter part of his time with the Celtics because he was reluctant to have the surgery because it's, it's, it's not a small recovery time. You know, it's three to four months, you know, 12 plus weeks usually. And it does, it is going to affect conditioning. It is going to slow him down. But in terms of his overall health and any kind of like serious risk, this is, this is not like a break in, in a metatarsal or some other, you know, foot bone, like, like no stress fractures, no back problems. It's nothing like that. It's really common among athletes. I would say probably the majority of athletes get them at some point in their career just because of the stress, and it's not anything to be concerned about. Is there I, – I saw that both – is it Zizic? Is it Zizic? I never – I'm still going to have to figure out how to say his name. Ante Zizic? Zizek works for me. Zizek? Okay. I saw Zizek and Yabuseli 
if they were drafted this year, they would both be lottery picks. Yeah, and they probably should be. I think we lucked out with that selection. I just want to put people at ease when they hear about big men, foot problem, that kind of a thing. We're, we're kind of a traumatized franchise in that regard, historically and recently with Sully. So don't worry. Yeah, it's going to be all right. To me, foot problems are not as alarming as knee problems. I think knees are probably the most concerning. Well, navicular bones will knock your career out, too. I mean, all the way back to several recent high-profile cases. Like, I mean, we lost an entire season of Kevin Durant. You know, it's, it's not a minor thing to get a foot injury as a big, unless it's something like this. This has nothing to do with being big and everything to do with just stressing out your feet. Mm-hmm. Okay. On to playoff picture and stuff like that. The Spurs were dispatched in four by the Warriors. Warriors, are they the first team to win? All 12 and 0, absolutely. First team ever? Yep. Cavs were on track to do it. And then game three happened. Oops. <laughs> Let's Sorry. go seize, right? I don't even know where to start on that. Well, I would start that um, if you're going to use the Monstars as a meme that you integrate into your warm-ups and such before the game, might be good to check and see how that movie ends. <laughs> Space Jam, right? So for those who didn't see it, so Monstars come steal the basketball ability of all the stars and then just ruin like Michael Jordan and... Who are they? They're not the Muppets. Why do I want to say the Muppets? It's, uh, the, well, it's, wait, Bugs Bunny and, what are they called? Oh, Looney Tunes. Looney Tunes. Thank you. I'm too young. You're welcome. That's okay. Young. I mean, I'm, I'm theoretically too young for that. That's, that's back from like the 40s when they came out, but. Yeah. So Michael Jordan and the Looney Tunes take on the Monstars who have the ability of all the good basketball players with the exception of apparently Michael Jordan because their scouts were terrible. The Monstars. Oops. And. <laughs> Then, yeah, so they eventually just, like, give their powers to the Looney Tunes, and then they just win the game. Kind of happened in Game 3. And check out Mark Allison's Twitter, because there was a sweet... He, I think, retweeted a picture of the moment that it probably happened. And it was pretty awesome. There's some other, there's some other stuff that we should probably mention, too. For all the Kelly Olenek is a dirty player discourse out there, particularly with Cleveland, which may be the only team in the league with any real legitimate claim to hating on Kelly Olenek. Tristan Thompson's out here yanking Amir's arm out of his socket, and what's going to happen about that? Are you suggesting that the Wizards, that those illegal screens that were called, were not dirty? Are you suggesting that? I'm suggesting that hard screens and illegal screens and illegal hard screens happen quite often, particularly in the NBA playoffs. And I'll tell you what, if your response is to run 20 yards and charge someone, you're the dirty player. Yeah. Well, so I don't know. There haven't been any repercussions yet. Amir did not play game four because of that shoulder injury. It wasn't as serious as Kevin Love's, where it was like a really serious, I don't remember what the exact injury prognosis was for Kevin Love after that. That was two years ago. Yeah, I think there was some I think there was some strain on the on the um ligaments, but I don't think did he need surgery for that? I can't remember. I don't really care. (laughs) Sorry. But nonetheless, a a little bit less severe, but still very similar play. And it it did knock him out for a game. It'll be interesting to see if he plays game five. I don't think we're going to see much of him. If if anything, we might see, you know, some garbage time minutes. But, I mean, Amir's ankles were already a problem, throwing a shoulder in. What is he going to do exactly? Yeah, just kind of bounce around. Not a lot. Uh, Maybe foul. Maybe a hard foul. Maybe. Uh, Game was awesome, with the exception of those. Well, the Amir injury. Uh, Not that he's necessarily, like, a huge contributor, especially down the stretch, but no, but you don't want to see anybody get injured. Just exactly. takes away from the game. Exactly. And it was it was a pretty exciting game. Celtics won 111-108 thanks to late-game heroics from Avery Bradley. But that's that's not even part of the story. There's, the story is Marcus Smart going 7 for 10 from 3. Jonas Jurebko going 100% from the floor. 
Talk about bad scouting reports, huh? Not to mention his just ability to just fire up the team. Jonas Repko came in and just was, he was a spark plug in the sense that he was just getting in the faces of the Cavs and just like getting them. Oh, the love flop. That was just the best. There was just so much great stuff about that game. And now if, if there's any indication of the potential of this team, and we talked about it at the beginning of the pod, that we had no all-stars even active on the roster against the Cavaliers who have, you know, $130 million payroll and like six top five picks on their roster. And the Celtics have Jalen Brown, Al Horford, and I think that's it as far as top five picks. And it wasn't like the, the Cavs were lying down either. Kevin Love hit seven of 13 from, from three to, to counter. It seemed almost like it was, you know, we expect that from Kevin Love, but I guess you can't really scout Marcus Smart's three point shooting as a reliable factor in most games. Absolutely not. There's no way of predicting it. And that was like, there was, yeah, that was just obscene that he was hitting that many. Our drinking game would have been catastrophic if we were drinking for every smart three. <laughs> that would have been rough, for sure. But, yeah, Marcus... So, Kevin Love opened up that game, like, five for five from outside in the first quarter. He had, like, Brutal. points in the first... He had more than 50, because he was hitting from everywhere, but he was just unreal. He was shooting blind. And we were still in it. Uh, more or less. I mean, I, I thought about turning off at halftime. Because we were down 16 at the half, I think. Yeah, but, with, but with compared the to the last two games, that was still in it. With the way that our games had gone, I just expected it to continue that way. And, and to be fair, we did come back from 21 down. Exactly. But, I don't think there was any way to predict that that was going to happen. Just all of a sudden. And that's the thing with this team is once we get rolling, the Celtics will just go. You know, there's, there's no stopping the Celtics once they start rolling. And uh, that's exactly what happened here. It's just one shot led to another, and then all of a sudden Marcus was hitting, and then the team got fired up, and just everyone was... It, it's like getting hot is contagious on this roster, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I think also when they're aware that the offense is not going to be coming from its usual source, it requires them to adjust their games in, in ways that they should be doing anyways, but for whatever reason, they haven't necessarily been... You know, they've been a little over-reliant on Thomas, and I think that the combination of pride, panic, and, you know, novelty really is the only way to put it, was what combined to give them this one particular game. I think that it carried over into game four, but a little, a little bit of the, uh, reality of the situation started to trickle in, and that's not a bad thing. We this team looks mortal. Yeah, we do have to mention the Kings stat line for game three, where he was just completely shut down, finished with only 11 points. I believe it was the first time in the playoffs that he's ever had less than 15, I believe, but I may be wrong on that. He contributed elsewhere, but one shy of a 30 point, uh, playoff game record, if I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that he, just missed it. Too bad. Yeah, but so Celtics shot him down. He shot four for thirteen from outside. It's just he was completely out of his out of his element, and he was distributing. And there was one point where we committed too hard to defending him, and then he found J.R. Smith wide open, top of the key to retake the lead. That was like last minute, I believe. But nonetheless, Brad Stevens. Brad Stevens saved us. I mean, obviously, also Avery did, but the after timeout to get the two for one, no way we would have won that game if had that not been set up properly. There was just, yeah, it was phenomenal calls by Stevens. Stuff that he was just writing up. They were talking about it during the game four. That those weren't things that he just normally has up his sleeve. These were plays that he was just kind of bringing out off the cuff and ended up being phenomenal. I watched the replay of that final shot by Avery. And just the movement, the screens, everything that was going on. And I think they were thinking that we were going to go for a two, which makes sense. And they talked about it, that it's tough to decide what's going to happen. Normally, the ball would be in the hands of Isaiah Thomas. They have very little sample size of who would be taking a late-game shot if his name is not Evan Turner two years ago or Isaiah Thomas this season. Yep. And that's really difficult to figure out who to defend, who to maybe double 
whether it's Al Horford, who had just hit a really clutch layup, or Marcus Smart, who was 7 for 10 from 3, or Avery Bradley, who ended up getting wide open because of some great screens and some great movement. So, game four, the momentum seemed to carry, at least in the first half. Yes. We took, I think we took a double-digit lead into the half, right? I think we were up as much as 16 points in the first half. Might be wrong. It might be a little higher than we were, but my memory is right. We were up at least 16 points. We had some big runs in the first. And it was just first time LeBron ever had four fouls in the first half in his career. I got a little irrationally exuberant because of that, just because they were calling them at home on him that fast. Yep. Well, it stopped. Yep. (laughs) It stopped pretty quickly. And I think he realized that because he suddenly... Like the first two minutes of the second half, he was a little bit more cautious, but then all of a sudden he realized they weren't going to blow whistles on him and he was suddenly back to himself, just like driving, throwing elbows, basically. It's just like knocking guys down. The and ball movement completely stopped on offense, too. What? The ball movement completely stopped on offense, too. A lot of bad yeah. looks, a lot of, a lot of early shots. It would be basically regressed to how he'd been playing most of the series against them and, when, when when Irving went off in in the third, there really we just had no answer. I think it deflated the Celtics when when Kyrie Irving started just tearing it up. I mean, there was no need to do anything else for the for the Cavs. Kyrie Irving was unreal in that third quarter, hitting from anywhere that he wanted, and just pulled out you know that championship winning three that he hit last June. Pulled out that to end the quarter where he just drained it. Deep. It was well defended. Avery Bradley was right in his face. He anticipated it and was in the air in front of him, and he still shot it over him. And it's still, set. it was the one of the more true shots that you can see this series. It was just the most insane. I don't understand how he has that ability, but once he gets rolling, he goes. And rolling his was, ankle? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Well played. Well played. Yeah, it almost seemed like that made him better. Well, it's like he got fired up more. It's like, I, I, and they talked about it that it may have been adrenaline or something, which it seemed like it was because then he went for an alley oop the next play, which he laid in. It's just. Meanwhile, I'm trying to get my car and drive after I do that. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was painful to watch the second half. And we stuck with him. The Celtics were with him through really the first. Up until the two minute mark, I think we had a chance. 36 minutes, I think. And then, yeah. We were with them through the fourth, but they just started to pull away, and then they retook the lead for the first time since the opening minutes, and then it was just over. So. What do you think about the LeBron James carry controversy? So that was the play, what was that, like two minutes left? Or minute 30 or so? There was- oh, no, there was more time than that. I can't remember exactly how much, but there was probably, I'm going to say eight or ten minutes left. I could be wrong, but that's why my, my mind is calling up anyway defended by Jalen Brown he's backing him down then does kind of like a Hakeem Olajuwon I don't know how to describe it was it like dream shake style play but he just kind of held his hand under the ball for a second and then spun it around went for the dribble now certain persons such as CBS has met more have gone to great lengths to try to see if there was a reason why it didn't get called as a travel when it looked very, very obviously like one. And they have pointed to Jalen reaching around his other side from where it was being carried. Now, let me just be very clear here. I am not bitching about this because of the carry. It just happens. It happens all the time. And that is not the reason why I think this is important. I feel that a lot of people dumped on Jalen in the immediate aftermath because they didn't get a good look at exactly what happened. It just looked like he had a defensive lapse. I don't believe he did. I believe he covered him about as well as any rookie ever could dream of covering the greatest player, arguably, in the game. The issue here is Brown's defense was not off. He was doing an illegal maneuver, which is, to be fair, Something that benefits the Celtics all the time, so I'm not complaining about that. Just lay off the rook. Yep. Agree. For sure. Any So Yeah, not not a lot else to say about that game. It was really 
decided. I've got something. It was decided in the fourth quarter. What do you got? Well, Irving's ankle, clearly a problem. Love turned his ankle also. I guess we'll find out what's going on with that. But, I mean, he's been having leg and back problems all year. And then one other thing, and I am so afraid to even mention this, but I'm going to anyway. What is going on with LeBron? Last game and this game. I mean, granted, he put up 36 points, I think. Yeah, 36 points and six assists. Not a bad performance for almost anyone's standards, even really LeBron's standards. But some of the elevation like that, like completely missed dunk. He, he channeled his inner Dwayne Wade. That was great to watch, but uh, it has me wondering. I forgot about that for a second. That was because he, that would have given them the lead for the first time since the early game. And he yep. went up, did his like go to tomahawk. Yep. And then just slammed it off the rim. Boink. There were three Celtics back there, and I was really. They showed the replay, and I was half expecting Marcus Smart to just let out a laugh right then, which would have made the entire season for me if Marcus had done that. And it's like he was looking for a foul. I'm pretty sure that after the play, he like held up his hands, like, "What's up, ref?" But there was literally nobody even touching. I don't think you have to say he might have. He basically did that every trip down the court. Well, yeah, but that time was especially egregious because there was not even slight contact. Not even near, no. But that, that has me wondering, he, like particularly with Game 3, but also this, is he trying to... I'm thinking back where he may have turned an ankle in Game 3 early. Well, I don't think that that has anything to do with that. I don't think he's like losing anything. I think this is... Or maybe he's just tired. Just, that's I'm that's probably part understand. of it. There was, there was a... Uh, back when he first came to Cleveland in 2014, I believe was his first year back, mm-hmm. he missed a similar style breakaway dunk. And suddenly, like ESPN, all the sports networks were blowing up saying, is he getting old? Is he finally... Is age <laughs> finally catching up to him? You know? I don't think it's age. And But yeah, I mean, that's that's the closest thing I can compare it to. And I actually want to touch on a different one where it actually was that play against Jalen with the carry. And he went for that kind of reverse. And for the first time ever about LeBron James, I felt like he didn't have the height on that jump to get up there. It looked like he almost should have gone for a layup instead because I wouldn't have been surprised if he had like Timofey Mozgov's just put it again, gotten blocked by the rim itself. And that was the point where I thought maybe it's exhaustion, maybe it's... Now, just Playing a lot of minutes. That his age is catching up, something of that nature. I, I don't I think, think it's his age. I think if he's got some rest, he's okay. Explosiveness forever, but it's there's a point where you know he's just going to be, and I don't think a step slower is is an efficient description because he's always going to be a step faster than everyone else. Maybe like a quarter step slower. I think he's I just think either he's sore or tired, and he's probably going to make me eat my words to the nth degree in in game five. I hope not. But it's just, it's something to keep an eye on. And I, I do think that attacking LeBron, particularly recently, has proven to be a lot more effective than even I anticipated. Do you think that those rolled ankles for the other All-Stars will have any impact on next game? I don't know. You know, it was really hard because of how late in the game it was for Love. It's really hard to see if it was more than just a, a really simple ankle turn, which could be nothing. But it could also be something really serious with someone who has problems like he's had with his knees and his back. Just adding more more favoring to to your frame is a great way to create stress injuries. But regardless of that, I don't think it's going to matter on his part. Irving, it's going to be harder to say. I'm sure we'll hear within the next 24 hours whether or not he's having some some longer-term issues from that. But it wouldn't surprise me at all, to be completely honest. If everyone shows up and is able to play a level high enough where they, at minimum, are a serious problem for us, and probably, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with my prediction here. I think that we can squeeze a win for Game Five out, and it's not impossible. But really, what it comes down to is Boston's play. When I say that, I mean, do we get first half Boston of Game Four or second half Boston? First half, Boston, I think we have a very, very good chance, regardless of how what condition they're in, of beating them one more time. But if we come out and we don't move the ball, if we 
take early shots and and generally play tight the way we have played for most of the series, then I don't think it really matters what 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 condition they're in because collectively they have enough people where they are at least are equal. Even if you remove two of the three of them, I still think that they can they can hang just fine. So ultimately, I don't think it's that relevant of a question, but it's something to keep an eye on nonetheless. My prediction for game five or game six, yeah, game five, game five is oh, both. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can take game five in Boston. I think one, the fans deserve it, especially after those just miserable games one and two. Absolutely. And I think that the Celtics are going to come out really with with a really strong drive and a, and a really big interest in winning this game. And I agree that the difference was night and day between the first half and second half of Game Four. That that movement that gave us that 16-point lead, that movement that brought us to jump out of the gate to really just both on defense and on offense to, to build this lead and to really put the Cavs on their heels, I think that comes out in force in Game 5 and sticks around through the entire game. I'm hopeful, hope. I'm hopeful that it's a double-digit win. I don't think it will be, but I'm hopeful. And if, if we play the way that we did in the first half of game four, I think that we could pull out a double digit win. Game I think six, so too. Jordan Mitchell, going to win us the series. <laughs> I don't think it's a realistic, you know, I'm just going to say that ahead of what I'm about to say. I don't think it's realistic for this to happen, but wouldn't it just be the sweetest, particularly with, with the way that each of these series have, have gone? This is pure fantasy. So don't take anything I'm about to say too seriously. But I could really use some Boston Celtics 3-1 t-shirts. <laughs> I think the world could. Well, we'll have to wait for it, right? Replay last year, last year's series. We could make the, uh, we could redo the, uh, Halloween thing that the Cavs did, where they did like the 3-1 style. Exactly what I'm thinking. I like irony, and this would be the most ironic of, of just the way everything's played out, so. Just a little something to chew on and think about. We love the underdog mentality. We absolutely have it right now, but... It's almost like we need it. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think that we need that that, uh, adversity. I think that that, that's the fuel that this team runs on. Well, we should probably get out of here, but do you have anything you're trying to plug or anything that we should be paying attention to or anything like that? I'm going to be stepping up on on my writing. I've been slacking for a while, so I'm going to be putting a lot of stuff. Uh, hopefully on a daily basis now that my schedule is kind of calming down a little bit. Anything you're working on? Well, we are neck deep in the last countdown to the NBA draft series where we talk about the guys we spoke of earlier. Y'all are selecting the players that you think should be taken first. And it's a foregone conclusion, almost certainly, to be false. But I think we're going to get a lot of interesting material back from you guys. We already have started to see it trickle in. I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys think about the potentiality of selecting other players. So keep an eye out for that. That should be out in the next couple of days. And with the draft being what it is uh, just weeks away now, we're going to start shifting. At least I'm going to start shifting focus to pre-agency starting next week. So keep an eye out for some some articles on potential free agent targets, not just big fish, but also meaningful contributors should the big fish not be part of the plans of the future. Awesome. Well, we'll look forward to it. I want to make like a draft countdown, you know? I think that'd be fun. Like a draft countdown thing? Because we got, what, now 28 days? 29 days? Something along those lines? I should probably be keeping better track of it than I am, but it's, I, it's 20 seconds. 20, 23rd? 22nd. 22nd? 22nd. Yep. In Brooklyn, which is kind of hilarious. It's the best. It's just the best. All right. Well, everybody, check out links at the top of CelticsLife.com. We have a huge variety of shirts and hoodies in our store, and you can even get tickets to the next game under that heading. You can find the pod on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and most podcatcher apps. Make sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us five stars. If you don't like something or you have a suggestion, let us know with a comment on any of our Celtics Life articles or this podcast article, or on Twitter with the hashtag CLPod. We just want to bring you guys the best coverage that you want the way that you like it. And as we've been kind of going along, we're doing our best to, to learn and improve on a regular basis. That's all I've got. Anything else you want to tack on? No, that's it, man. All right. Have a great week, everybody. 
go Celtics game five. Let's bring it to, to six and then get those three one shirts going. They'll be on Celtics Cliff. We got them. They'll be sweet. Absolutely. All right. Carry on. <laughs> I love music. I, I always, I always like, yeah. <laughs>